Welcome and thank you for joining us for this special Christmas presentation that I'm calling Harry Potter and the Heart of Christmas. Even a brief literary survey shows that we think of Christmas in magical and enchanted terms. Sometimes it's kind of grim, like in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, where specters and ghosts visit Scrooge in the middle of the night. And other times it's just simply jolly as flying reindeer and sleds overcome the barriers of space and time to deliver gifts across the world. But it's not just in our world that we think of Christmas as magical. We also expect its appearance in virtually every other world that we encounter. That world might be Narnia, where when we come across a winter that never gives us Christmas, we are miserable. And in fact, we learn that a white witch has spread her death across the land so that Christmas never comes. And it's only when Father Christmas arrives that things start to become better once again. It's no surprise then that in the magical world of Harry Potter, Christmas features in every single book. This tells us something about the nature of Christmas. Whatever it might mean, whatever the heart of Christmas really is, it tells us something about who we are, the heart of our desires, the nature of life and death, and our movement towards our life purpose, our end, our goal. And in so doing, it allows us to transcend the ordinary world. Uh, it finds a comfortable home in whatever magical world Christmas might land in. Now, some of you might object, can we look at Christmas and fairy tales and Harry Potter and find something valuable and meaningful in it? it are, are fairy tales just fairy tales? Are children's stories just children's stories with nothing more to offer than entertainment? Well, if you make that objection, then I am going to suggest that you are a lot like Ron and Harry when they start to make fun of Hermione as she pours over the children's stories of Beetle the Bard. As she's looking at these tales and they just have a huff as they look at her thinking she's wasting her time, I, I think Rowling and other fairy tale authors intend us to read their stories deeply and carefully and try to learn something about ourselves and the meaning of life as we enter into these magical worlds. So we are going to proceed into the world of Harry Potter, to Hogwarts and beyond to think about the true meaning of Christmas. And in so doing, as we think about Christmas in that magical world, I think we'll come to know what it means better there so that we can experience it better here. And so that in just a couple of weeks, we will be able to experience Christmas in a more deep and meaningful way. Now, before we get fully into the world of Harry Potter and Hogwarts, we can think of Harry's experience of Christmas in the mundane world. Or, or at least the world that we experience in mundane ways. You can imagine Harry at home with the Dursleys and he's getting up on Christmas morning and he goes downstairs to find Dudley, or should we say Duddykins, already sitting at the foot of the tree, unwrapping all of the presents and just about to break out into hysterical cries that he didn't get more presents this year than he got last year. 
I think that's what Harry's experience of Christmas would have been, and, and it would have been awful. Now, of course, the Dursleys would have convinced themselves that they were experiencing a truly enchanting Christmas as their little duddykin screams and ruins the day, and then they send Harry back to his cupboard. Uh, that, that's the kind of experience that Harry has had for Christmas for his entire life until he gets to Hogwarts. So in book one, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Harry is going to experience Christmas in the magical world for the very first time. If you remember the scenes, the night before Christmas, he goes to bed anticipating deep friendship and delightful food and just a good time on Christmas morning. But when he wakes up, he finds a pile of presents at the foot of his bed. Now, you might think that this is meaningless, but this is the first time Harry's ever gotten presents. So he opens them. One of them happens to be like a 50-cent piece or something like that from the Dursleys. So even their mundane, you know, awful way of living makes its way into the magical world. But then he opens up a sweater that Ron's mom made for her. He has a couple of other gifts. But the most significant gift and the one that we're going to encounter multiple times tonight is the invisibility cloak. And he doesn't know who he receives this from, but it's obviously a really important gift. Ron recognizes this right away. But then Harry goes on to enjoy a scrumptious Christmas dinner that Rowling takes a whole paragraph to describe. And you can imagine this is the first time Harry's had that kind of a Christmas dinner. Uh, there are people singing Christmas carols and having a good time. But all the while, in the back of Harry's mind, he's wondering, who gave him this invisibility cloak? So he goes back up to his room, he puts it on, and then as we would expect a first year Hogwarts student to do, he creeps out at night past curfew to explore the castle, really on a mission to go to the restricted section of the library. But he runs into Filch along the way, so he hides in a room, and in that room, Harry discovers the mirror of Erised. So if you can remember this scene in the book or in the movie, there's just this large mirror in an empty room, but there's a text inscribed across the top of the mirror. And it's really nonsense. And if you tried to read it like I did the first time I read it, you wouldn't be able probably to pronounce it. And that's because the, the key to reading this inscription is actually reading it backwards. So the mirror of desire, is a, it's a mirror of desire. So Erised backwards is desire. And the whole text backwards says, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. And it's intriguing that Rowling positions this scene on Christmas night, because I think she's connecting something about our heart's desire to the true meaning of Christmas in something that Harry is going to learn along the way. Now, if you remember, as Harry stares into that mirror, he sees the, his family, his parents, and he gets right up to the mirror to where his nose actually touches the mirror. Now, this is significant, particularly if you've read any amount of mythology, because Rowling is drawing on the myth of Narcissus. If you remember that myth, Narcissus goes to this well and he starts to gaze into it as he's looking at his own beauty. That's where we get the term narcissistic from. So he's staring at this till his nose touches it. And eventually Narcissus meets his demise. 
you know, he, he learns that thinking about myself and looking just at me, it, it kills me. You know, it, he dies. And actually, later on in Harry Potter, there's a character named Narcissa who learns this same lesson. This is Draco Malfoy's mother. So she, she's going to learn the lesson of Narcissus, but Harry is about to learn the, the lesson of Narcissus as well. So he's sitting in front of this mirror, staring at his parents, and he feels like he could just stay there for the rest of his life. But he eventually goes back and he gets Ron and brings Ron to look in the mirror. And if you remember, when Ron looks in the mirror, he sees himself winning the Quidditch Cup. He's the most popular guy ever. Everyone's cheering for him. And Harry thinks that Ron is going to see Harry's parents, but he doesn't. And what they start to learn and what Dumbledore confirms later is that this mirror only shows you your deepest longings. So Harry, who had never known his parents, just wanted to know his, his parents, his family. Ron, who was from a large family and was always overshadowed by others, wanted to be the key figure. He wanted to be the one that got all of the attention. And what Dumbledore teaches Harry in those moments is that there have been people who have wasted their whole lives sitting in front of this mirror, looking at what their heart truly desires. So he leaves Harry with a parting piece of advice that says, don't forget that it's better, uh, don't, don't dream and let life pass you by is essentially the message. He says something like, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. And, and then Harry asks Dumbledore, well, what do you see in the mirror? And Dumbledore tells him that he sees himself just holding a nice pair of woolen socks. Now, Harry doubts that this is the case, and he wonders later on what Dumbledore actually sees. And we start to get the impression that no matter how content you are, or no matter how satisfied you are with your life, you're never going to just see yourself, but you're always going to see something more. And that's because, as one ethicist, a guy named McGarney says, tucked into every love is an I want that. So every time we say I love that, we think I want that. And, and we learn, in a sense, that where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. So Rowling is doing something here to show us that Christmas and sort of the enchantment of Christmas draws something out of ourselves. It draws a desire out of ourselves. And, and we see this in other tales as well, whether it's a wonderful life where, where there's this desire that's being drawn out and this guy has to learn that life with less than what he might desire is better than no life at all. And we learn all sorts of lessons like this, but it's a hard lesson to learn because as that ethicist goes on to say, the nature of the emotion of desire, the passional expression of our pressing wants is such that once the object of our desire is actually attained, the desire cooperatively dissipates, wafts away on the breeze. The fulfillment of our desires has a quieting effect on us. We experience a pacifying contentment, but unfortunately, it's never a permanent one. So even if Harry were to be with his parents, or if Ron were to be the Quidditch Cup champion, there would be another desire that would replace it, because those desires never actually satisfy. And I think there's something to learn here because we always desire the best thing we can imagine, Can't, don't we? We, we, experience, we desire the best thing we can think of. And in fact, we evaluate all our experiences in terms of the best or the worst. 
So somewhere deep down inside us is a vision of the transcendent. That is something that goes beyond anything we could experience in this world. And we're always looking for the best. And the best quickly gets replaced with another best. So this Christmas, you might get the best gifts you've ever had. But next Christmas, you're going to open a gift and you're going to say, this is the best Christmas gift I've ever had. And that's because there's something in us that longs for a transcendent, a desire that can never be satisfied in this world. Now, there's another guy named C.S. Lewis who wrote something like this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we're made for another world. So the most probable explanation isn't that I will find the satisfaction of that desire somewhere else. Instead, the most probable explanation is that I'm made for another world. And I would bet that you felt that, a desire that maybe you can't even describe, and, and it's never been met. There are different words that we use to talk about this, wanderlust or sangsuit or some of these other terms, but what it's doing is showing us that we belong to another world. Now, unfortunately, sometimes Christians will hear Lewis say this statement or hear Christians talk in this way, and they start to imagine that the best thing is that we will die and our soul will escape our body and will be in heaven, and that's when all of our desires will be met. Well, that's not the way that Christians have historically thought about desire or about the satisfaction of desire or the other world that we're meant to live in. Instead, Christians think in terms of a resurrection where we will find new life in a, a new creation where this world with all of its brokenness and unmet desires is going to pass away and a new world will be made that we live in and we progress forward and find the end of our heart's desire. Now that's a, a little bit of a paradoxical way of talking about desire because as soon as desire's gone, we cease to live. Someone who has no desire has nothing to live for and nothing to move towards. And what that teaches us is that we must desire the transcendent, the, the ultimate good, the true, and the beautiful. And so it sets us on a course of life looking for the way, the true way, that leads to life and leads to the, the end of a desire that goes on forevermore, where in, in the terms of Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, where we just keep on going further up and further in. It's not the end of desire, but it's a beginning to the right goal of desire. Now, how does this relate to Christmas, you might be wondering. Well, if you grew up singing Christmas carols, and these carols make an appearance in Harry Potter multiple times, one carol that I grew up singing is the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In the, in the fourth verse of this song, there's a line that goes this way. Come, desire of nations, come. And what that's cluing us into is there's something about Christmas that has to do with desire, a desire that's going to come. And the next line says, fix in us thy humble home, to where our deepest desires are going to find their counterpart that will result in, in, in kind of an indelible life, a life that doesn't go away. 
Now I'm going to read the, the rest of the lines of that, that song, and we're going to connect to this in a few moments. It says, rise, so this is talking about the desire within us. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thy image in its place. Okay, so think of serpents and think of crushing serpents and hold on to that in, in your mind because in Harry Potter, we're going to encounter a serpent that needs to be totally demolished. Let me bring into desire something that we could refer to as a distortion of desire. A distorted desire, a desire that has run amok, that's bent, that has gone totally wrong. And that desire, this distorted desire, is a desire to circumvent death. While in this first book of Harry Potter, Harry begins to learn something about desire as as he stares into the mirror of desire, there's another figure who has failed to learn lessons about death, and that is the Dark Lord. That's Voldemort, okay? He's, he's the Lord of Death, right? He who must not be named. He and his followers, they're named Death Eaters. And if you connect this idea of being the Lord of Death and being a Death Eater, you understand that at the core of their movement or of their bond and their identity is this distorted desire to overcome death regardless of what it takes. That's what, that's what sets Voldemort, Tom Riddle, off on the wrong path. And if you read any other fantasy literature, you're going to find over and over again that there are these characters, and they're always evil, who have a distorted desire to conquer death and to control death. Uh, So we'll bring Star Wars into this. When Anakin goes bad, it's when he's taking revenge and trying to conquer death so that his mother never would have died. And while there's a grain of something good in that desire, that's true about all distorted desires. There's something good there that's that's now broken. Now, I think that this distorted desire is something that every single one of us has. And this goes all the way back in the Christian tradition to the the book of Genesis chapter 3, where there's this man and this woman who have tried to to, uh, disobey God. They've tried to take control of their own destiny. They've tried to determine what right and wrong is instead of submitting to the world of their creator. And the, the curse for that is the curse of death. Now, even in that curse, if you're familiar with the biblical story, there's a mitigation of death. There's something that pushes death away, but it doesn't totally get rid of it. And actually, there are two things that push death away. One is childbirth. So, so God says to the woman, you're going to bear children, and that, that's a sign of life. And so that's a mitigation of death. And then he speaks to the man, you're going to work the ground, and it's going to bring forth food that, that sustains your life. So that's going to help mitigate death. And we start to learn that humans are never intended to circumvent death on their own altogether. The best they can do is to mitigate it, to push it off a little while, but eventually every person has to die. Every person's going to die, and it's futile to to try to circumvent it. Now, we know that humans from the very beginning are going to try this because at the end of Genesis 3, 
God speaks and says that this man and this woman are going to try to sneak into the garden and get in contact with this tree of life so that they can live forever. And so from the very beginning, humans have wanted to circumvent death. And that's why, you know, these these fairy tales are just building on the story of the Bible when they bring this up. Now, in Harry Potter, there are two ways that you can circumvent death. One way is through something called the Horcrux. And this is the most evil, just outrightly evil of ways to try to circumvent death because it necessitates the killing of someone else. And of course, as as good readers of Harry Potter, we know that this is exactly what Voldemort has done. He has split his soul into seven pieces so that he can circumvent death. And in every time that he splits his soul, he has to kill somebody else. Now, what's ironic about this, and this is something that Voldemort will never understand, is that there are things that are worse than death. There are things worse than dying. And Harry understands this from the beginning when, when there's this unicorn that's killed and, and he learns that, you know, this guy is trying to drink this unicorn blood and, and that he'll be cursed forever, but, but he thinks it's worth it. Harry says, if you're going to be cursed for the rest of your life, isn't death better? And and that should be the impulse we all have, to realize that there are things that are worse than death. But Voldemort doesn't get this, and and he would rather have his soul separated and broken up than to experience death. But at the core of it, that's exactly what death is. When when our, our, our supernatural person, when our spiritual person is separated from our physical bodies, that is death. And, and that's why Christians aren't happy just to go to heaven. That's why their greatest hope isn't just in being heaven when they die, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the resurrection that they will participate in, because that's when the body and soul are united again. But the Horcrux does the exact opposite of that. So the Horcrux is the opposite of a resurrection, even though Voldemort has fooled himself into thinking that it is a resurrection of sorts. Now, there's a second... Uh, less nefarious but still evil way of trying to circumvent death in Harry Potter. And this is depicted in the Deathly Hallows. So if you remember the symbol with the triangle in the circle in the line going through it, it's depicting this elder wand, this most powerful wand, and the resurrection stone and the invisibility cloak. And if you remember the tale of Beetle and Bard, the tale of the three brothers, they escaped death and they got him to give him these gifts. And the oldest brother wanted the the most powerful wand in the world so that he could kill anyone who gets in his way. And, And so we see that in that circumvention of death, it actually requires death. And then the second brother wanted the resurrection stone so he could bring his loved one back to life. Uh, But he comes to find out that she doesn't truly come back to life. It's just a figment. And, And he goes mad. The third brother, the wisest of the brothers, asks for the invisibility cloak, realizing that at best he can just evade death for a time. Uh, but eventually he gives his cloak to his son and, and welcomes death as a friend. But even that circumvention of death is is temporary at best. Now, as many wizards in Harry Potter read this story, they wanted to find all three of these Deathly Hallows and own them at once because they thought that would make them immortal. So you have these multiple ways of circumventing death, and both of these are evil. 
Now, I have been reading this evening a little that little book, The Tales of Beetle and Bard. And this edition has notes by Professor Albus Dumbledore. And so you know the true meaning of the story as you read Albus Dumbledore's notes. Let me read you three of his notes that have to do with the interpretation of the tale of Beetle and Bard. He says this, Human efforts to evade or overcome death are always doomed to disappointment. The third brother in the story, the humblest and the wisest, is the only one who understands that. He understands that the best he can hope for is to postpone his meeting with death as long as possible. Now, uh, he goes on to say that a tiny majority minority of this wizarding community persists in believing that Beetle had this tale to try to set them on the course of finding these Deathly Hallows and bringing to them together and chase immortality. But Dumbledore points out that's the exact opposite point of this story. So he ends his reflections with this line. Wizards and muggles alike are imbued with a lust for power. How many would resist the wand of destiny? Which human being, having lost someone they loved, could withstand the temptation of the resurrection stone? Even I, Albus Dumbledore, would find it easiest to refuse the invisibility cloak, which only goes to show that, clever as I am, I remain just as big a fool as everybody else. And what these things are showing us on, on a positive hand is that death is actually an enemy. It's cruel, but what it's teaching us on the other hand is that the only way to defeat death is by facing up to it and passing through it. Of course, we learn these things in other pieces of literature. I mean, these three powers, you know, coercion and invisibility and uh, in long life, these are the same powers of the ring in, in the Lord of the Rings. There's a guy named Ralph Wood who points this out. And so this is common to our humanity to want to circumvent death. We need to find, have a better desire, and we need to find a better way forward to defeat death. Albus Dumbledore explains that to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. It's just a portal to life. So if we're going to have well-organized minds, we need to connect ourselves and place ourselves in a larger story, a really well-organized story. And in the final book of Harry Potter, Rowling does this for us as she follows Harry's journey beginning on Christmas Eve all the way until the end of the story. Now I'm going to just summarize this quickly, but I think that the events that Harry is depicting in his journey is the story that every one of us has to tie into if we want to have a well-organized mind and find a way to direct our desire to defeat death in the proper way. So the the first scene in that I want to draw your attention to in Harry Potter uh, book seven. I think it's chapter 16 and it's called Godric's Hollow. And this is Harry's birth town. He's going to back to his birth town and uh, he and Hermione are all alone. This is the darkest place in their journey. Ron has abandoned them. They're looking for answers. They have nowhere else to turn. And so they take this polyjuice potion that disguises them. And they are just, a, they look like a married couple walking hand in hand late on, on Christmas Eve in the snow to Harry's birthplace. And of course, this reminds you, if you're familiar with the biblical story of Joseph and Mary traveling all alone to Bethlehem. 
So the, Harry and Hermione get to Godric's Hollow and they hear people singing Christmas carols in the church. They realize that it's Christmas Eve and they decide to look in the cemetery to find Harry's parents' tombstone. And as they're looking around for this, the first tomb that they uncover is the tomb of Albus's mother and sister. And Albus had inscribed on this tomb that, that saying, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And at this point, this is a lesson that Harry still has not learned. But then when they come to Harry's parents' tombs, he reads their names, and then underneath he reads this inscription. And the inscription says, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Now, Harry doesn't understand this. And, and if you've read the Bible, you might pick up on the fact that this is actually a Bible verse. And, and Harry misunderstands it, and he thinks, and he says something like, isn't that the way the Death Eaters talk? Isn't that what they're all about, defeating the enemy of death? And Hermione explains to him, and if you haven't caught this, Hermione is essentially drawn from the Greek god Hermes, okay, the messenger god who explains everything. So Hermes, Hermione, explains to Harry once again for the umpteenth time in the series that it means something different. It means that you go on living after death. And so there's a kind of death that leads to life. But Harry thinks that this is a farce, at least at this moment, and he moves on. And then they encounter this old lady that they've kind of been looking for, Batilda Bagshot. Kind of sounds like an old lady. And, and she motions to them. They sense that they can, she can identify who they are, even though they're in disguise. And she leads them into her house. And, and eventually she gets Harry away from Hermione. And, and remember, this is Christmas Eve, okay? And so she gets him up alone in this room, and Harry gets distracted looking at something. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees Batilda transforming. That's maybe the, the less graphic way of talking about it. And, and he sees the snake, Nagini, coming out, okay? This serpent. Now, I told you serpents would come up again. Well, here it is. And, and Harry needs to crush the serpent. He needs to slay the serpent, uh, but the serpent wraps around him. He drops his wand, and he's about to be defeated, but then Hermione runs in and essentially rescues him, and, the, and then Harry gets this vision of Voldemort on his way. You know, something worse than the snake is coming, and so Hermione shoots off this rebounding curse. They, they jump out the window, and as they jump out the window, Rowling notes that the bells of Christmas morning begin to ring. Now, I think what she's trying to get us to understand here is, is found in, in the fact that Harry's wand breaks in this violent struggle, okay? So Harry, throughout this series, especially um, in, in the last couple books, has come to believe that his wand has powers in it that's greater than him. So he believes the only way that he'll ever defeat the Dark Lord is with this wand. Well, his wand is broken beyond repair. And this is the first event in the larger story that the Bible tells, and that's the story of the incarnation, when, when the God-man comes to exist, and when he is content to, as a man, dwell with men. That's what the Christmas carols say. So we have this incarnation event where Harry, in a sort of Christ figure way, is now just like every other person. 
There's nothing else that's special about him because the key to his power is seemingly gone. Now, let me say as a side note that there are other Christ figures in Harry Potter. Uh, he's Harry's not the only one, and that's what makes us such a good story. It's a bit like Lord of the Rings that way. But then there's another event in in the that precedes or that follows after this, and and that's when Harry is led away by a Patronus, and he sees the sword of Godric Gryffindor, that the thing that they needed, in the bottom of an icy pool, and he jumps in, but he still has a Horcrux around his neck, and he's struggling for his life. And then all of a sudden, he doesn't even know what's happening, but strong hands grab him and start pulling him up to to pull him out of the water. Now, we come to find out that Ron came back. Now, whenever you're reading a story and a, a character is temporarily submerged in water, you can think of that in terms of a baptism. And particularly with Rowling writing in the Anglican tradition, uh, she has these key events of Christ's life in mind. And you have a guy named Ron, who uh, another guy named John Granger, who calls himself the Hogwarts professor. He refers to Ron here as Ron the Baptist, who's pulling Harry out of the water. And you have this baptismal event. Uh, and, and this, again, is tying us into a larger story. And it's a story that we actually find first in the Bible. Now, we all know that the next major event in in the life of Jesus, and that's Jesus' death. And so we're not surprised to find that Harry is put in a place where he has to essentially sacrifice himself to provide for the life of others. And, and what Harry's going to start to learn is that there are things worse in life than death. The death of your friends being one of them. And so Harry faces Voldemort. He's walking along the way. And at this point, Harry has his invisibility cloak. He has the resurrection stone. He has almost all of the Deathly Hallows, but he gives them up. He drops them to the side. The lesson that every one of us have to learn, that we can't circumvent death. And the only way to conquer death is to do so through the irony of experiencing death. So then... Dumbledore explains to Harry as he's at King's Cross Station in kind of this white, you know, middle of nowhere. He says to Harry, you are the true master of death because the true master does not seek to run away from death. He accepts that he must die and understands that there are far, far things in the living world than dying. I think that this is the most important lesson that we learn in all of the Harry Potter books, that there are things worse in this world than dying. And in fact, we conquer dying by giving of ourselves for others. Now we might ask though, what is the purpose of that? What is the purpose of death? Well, in the grand story, and we see this in a way with Harry, he rises from the dead. So, so you have Hagrid carrying him. He, he's truly alive, but everyone thinks he's dead. And I think uh, John Granger refers to this guy as Hagrid of Arimathea, who's, who's carrying what looks like the lifeless body of Harry. And Harry, of course, pops out eventually, and, and he conquers Voldemort. Um, but there, there's something that happens in between, and that's what this guy named Neville Longbottom. And if your name, if your last name is Longbottom, you're a guy who's always gonna lose. Okay, like there are some names that you can't lose with. Well, this is the name you always lose with. But in the end, 
Neville cuts off the head of the serpent. And, and that's just another part of this conquering of the serpent, crushing the head of the serpent. And in this way, Neville serves as the Christ figure sort of temporarily. But we, we need to ask then, what's the end of death and resurrection? And, and what is really the true meaning of Christmas that is wrapped up in desire and in the undistorted desire that conquers death in the right way? And that is, I think, ultimately a new kind of life where things that are broken are restored, where things that are divided are healed, where things that are lacking life are, are given the fullness of life. Now, the way that, that Rowling pictures this is in the final meal that everybody celebrates together after the last battle. If you remember, throughout this series, there are four houses. You have Gryffindor and Slytherin and Hufflepuff and... Um, and uh, Ravenclaw. So you've got these four houses and, and they're always competing for things. And in the first book, you have this great scene where Slytherin is going to win the house cup. They've officially won, but then Dumbledore gives out more points and all the banners switch from the green serpent to the red lion. And, it, and that's biblical imagery for the lion of Judah. Well, now after all death has been defeated, after all has been made right, the houses are no longer sitting by themselves, but they're sitting together. All the houses are united, and this picture is what we think of in the Christian world as a new humanity that's being made in Jesus Christ who conquers death supremely. So what we come to find out is that there is no way around death in the end. But there are ways that if we die to ourselves, if we give sacrificially, we can impart taste of the eternal life that will come in the future to those who are in our lives. Now, the Bible talks about this on occasion in terms of a tree of life. Well, the tree of life was, you know, humans couldn't return there. But throughout the book of Proverbs, it talks about things like hope being a tree of life and words of wisdom being a tree of life. And, and we get taste of life eternal in this world. But it's rarely life that we taste for ourselves. It's life that we give to other people through our way of being in this world. So I had a friend who was reflecting on the tree of life and how to impart life to others in this world. And I think that his paragraph is a fitting way to end our ideas of the conquering of death in, in the true meaning of Christmas. He says, in reflection, as theological readers of the Bible, the frankness of the author of Proverbs about earthly matters can be discerning. Discerning. Um, Christ has revealed that all true life is in him and that those who live, live in Christ. Yet this book of Proverbs is calling us to consider the nature of life as a basic gift of God given to all his creatures. And even though he posted angels at the garden guarding the tree of life, preventing mortals from gaining the tree, he allows us to partake of the fruit in part through the experience of hope gained, a gentle tongue, and wise living. This small taste prepares us for eternity when we will feast on the true fruit forever with Christ, just as these four houses feast together in unity for the first time in the school's history. So as we think about the true meaning of Christmas, I want to encourage you as you're with your family to give gifts and impart life to them. Speak words of kindness and love and consider the one who gives us the, the fullness of life, the one who is the way, who is the truth that leads to life.